0: I read a magazine article this week from the Time magazine entitled, Who's the Biggest? The 100 Most Significant Figures in History. The list included names such as Napoleon, Muhammad, William Shakespeare, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Adolf Hitler, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Thomas Jefferson, Henry VIII of England, Charles Darwin, Queen Elizabeth I, Karl Marx, Julius Caesar, Queen Victoria, Martin Luther, Joseph Stalin, Albert Einstein, Christopher Columbus, Isaac Newton, and the list goes on and on through 100 names of the top most influential figures in history. Every person is given a dash between two dates that we have called life. And every one of us will leave behind some form of legacy. Some throughout the years have been forgotten more quickly than others. And some have made lists, like in Time Magazine, as the most influential people in history. But whatever your legacy that you leave behind, it's a legacy left behind nonetheless. And you are the only one who really dictates what it looks like. Things can be changed and tweaked But at the end of the day, the majority of the legacy you leave behind really falls on you. How you'll act, how you'll interact with other people, the things you'll say and do—that will ultimately dictate the legacy that you leave behind. Our world and our culture is very against the two things that we're talking about today, and I don't think that they they're outspoken like we hate humility. I think our culture just teaches the opposite of humility. Secularism doesn't say, humble yourself before God. It says, exalt yourself and then let other people exalt you too. The world doesn't say, be a servant to everyone. No, the world says, serve yourself. And if you feel like helping somebody else, then maybe. Maybe try to be moral and good, maybe, if it's convenient for you. To my surprise, there was a name that held the number one spot on that list from Time Magazine. You know what name held number one? Jesus. As much as I'd like to be excited about that, my immediate skepticism kicks in and says, if Jesus is number one at that list, then where is he in our culture? If a secular magazine is putting out an article that says that Jesus is literally the most influential person that has ever existed, where is he in our culture? And I think that you know the answer. He's really not there. Jesus to people is a guy. He was cool, maybe. Maybe they Most people are pretty indifferent about Jesus, though. They think he's a good guy. They think he was moral, that he did a lot of good things. But the Bible says he's far more than a moral, nice guy. The Bible says that he is God in flesh and that he deserves every ounce of our worship and every ounce of our praise. And so as we look around at celebrities, there's people who are famous, and I don't even know why they're famous, because they haven't really done anything to be famous. There are people who are famous for very shameful reasons. But nonetheless, they're famous, and they've left behind a legacy And my question for you this morning as we dive into this text and as we read, and the the thing that I would like you to be asking yourself this morning is, am I leaving behind a legacy that lines up with these things? Or is my legacy kind of over here, and the things that God is calling us to do might be a little over here? And so we're going to jump into the text in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Jesus left behind a legacy like no other. And even if Time Magazine had not put his name at number one, it belongs at number one forever and ever. So in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse two says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So we see it's the time of Passover. For the Jews, this was a big deal. The Feast of Passover was a celebration of their liberation from slavery. Passover was important. There are still Jews today. That, uh, you know, if you look at the Jewish holidays, Passover is still the most emphasized and the most important to most Jewish people today. And so it's Passover time. Jesus is going to go to the cross during Passover. And this ultimately is the eve of Jesus' death. The shadow of the cross is evident, and Jesus now knows that his hour has come. There are so many significant things for our faith as Christians that will happen on this night in history. One of which I believe we often overlook because there are big things in this passage like communion, and his betrayal, his arrest, all these things that are coming. And sometimes we forget about the very thing that we're talking about this morning, which is that Jesus will wash the the feet of his disciples. Verse 4. So he, Jesus, rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This would have been the typical way that feet washing took place. And he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, because he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew that Judas would betray him. And that is why he said, not all of them are clean. So the night takes an interesting turn. Probably a normal night for Jesus and his disciples. They find a place to stay. They gather for a meal. But then this weird twist, Jesus stands up. And he takes on the garb of a servant. And not just a servant, the lowliest of servants. Foot washing at this time in culture is considered the lowest position that one could take. In fact, masters over slaves, as we're about to read from Philip Yancey, were not even allowed to subject Jewish people to this level of slavery because it was considered too degrading. So to wash somebody's feet was to take the lowest position possible. Jesus stands up, he prepares himself, and he washes the feet of the disciples. Philip Yancey says in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, As I read John's account, I can't, I can't help but keep coming back to a particular incident that interrupts the progress of the meal. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And John begins with a flourish and then adds this incongru- inc- incongruous completion. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. In the garb of a slave, he then bent over and washed the grime of Jerusalem from the disciples' feet. What a strange way for the guest of honor to act at a final meal with his friends. What incomprehensible behavior from a ruler. I confer on you a kingdom was told by him from the Father just before. And in those days, foot washing was considered so degrading that a master could not even require it of a Jewish slave. Peter blanched at the provocation. The scene of foot washing stands out to author M. Scott Peake as one of the most significant events of Jesus' life. Until that moment, the whole point of things had been for someone to be at the top. And now the man who was already at the top, a rabbi, a teacher, a master, suddenly got down to the bottom and began to wash the feet of his followers. I love this quote. In one single act, Jesus symbolically overturned the entire social order. Hardly comprehending what was happening, even his own disciples were slightly horrified by what what was taking place. A weird occurrence. I like how Yancey says that. It's just weird interruption to what seems like a normal night, And the first thing that I want to hit on, you could say this is point number one, if you will. If you're taking notes, I would write this down. Humility is unannounced. If you look at the behavior of Jesus during this meal, Jesus doesn't stand up, get everybody's attention, and say, I am now going to demonstrate servanthood. Because you don't get it. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus stands up, says not a word, takes on the garb of a servant, and begins washing the disciples' feet. Now, how weird would that be if you're one of the disciples? I I was telling first service, you know, like I go to lunch with people all the time. I use Matthew as an example. Can you imagine walking into a restaurant? There's Matthew and I sitting at a a booth. We're going to, you know, get a burger. And... I ask the waitress for a bucket of water and I start washing Matthew's feet before we eat. That makes me uncomfortable just thinking about it. But can you imagine seeing this sort of a scene unfold? It would be quite bizarre. But what we have to understand is that foot washing was a regular occurrence in this culture. And so we see things like communion and and other practices that we still carry out today. But I wonder... What if we washed each other's feet on a Sunday morning? Now, you're looking at the person next to you and saying, not a chance, buddy. Right? You're looking at their shoes right now. Do they look well? Hygiene? Right? We're not going to wash each other's feet today, but it's an interesting thought. If you call attention to your humility, it is no longer humility. Chuck Swindoll said, If you want to be a servant, don't spend too much time on the speech. Just serve. Because that is our role as Christians. We're called to serve. We have this deep desire within us as humans to want to be affirmed, and it is an understandable desire, but it is not necessarily how we are supposed to operate. We're not supposed to do things and say things and take action on certain things so that we can be recognized by man. Because Jesus said, no, do it unto your heavenly Father. Don't do it for the praise of men. Matthew chapter 6. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 6. Just a few books back. It's the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew 6. Now, this passage in particular is referencing giving, but it is still very applicable for what we're talking about this morning. Matthew 6, verse 1. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, I want to stop right there and say this. It doesn't say, Beware of practicing righteousness in front of other people. That is your call as a Christian, to be righteous in front of others and when you're alone. But the the issue in the text is the motivation for your righteousness. If you want to be righteous so that other people will see you in the sense that you want to receive... Uh, affirmation and praise, then your motivation is off. If you want to be righteous in front of other people to uphold who Christ is and what he's done in your life, that is a righteous desire in and of itself. But if your motivation for being a Christian or being a moral righteous person is so that other people will think you're cool or good, you have it wrong because you're called to live unto Jesus. So Matthew is not saying don't be righteous in front of other people. He's saying do it with the right intentions. And then he picks up, still in verse 1, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Don't announce it, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, th- that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've already received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand even know what your right hand is doing. And the, the idea there is, do it secretly so that, you, that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. When you do service and good things, the scripture says, do it for God. Do it unto God. Whatever that thing is, do it unto him. Not so that everybody can see what you're doing and say, oh, wow, what a great guy. Now, I understand that. I understand that. Every one of us has a a desire to be liked. And no one in this room can raise their hand and honestly say, I enjoy people hating me. Okay? You have not been designed that way by God. Every one of us is built up through praise and encouragement. It is soothing to the soul to be encouraged. And sometimes amongst criticism, one small encouragement can carry you through the midst of a lot of discouragement. Um, I can tell you that, you know, there are times in ministry where things get difficult. There are just times in real life. You know, I worked in, even the secular workforce, I worked in it for seven years. And there are times where you think everybody, you know, I worked in and out, it gets stressful. And you're like, man, everyone here hates everyone because that guy just ordered 50 cheeseburgers in the drive-thru. Can I just say something real quick? (laughs) If you are going to place an order that is over 25 burgers go inside. Because what you do is you back up all the other cars who are getting a meal on their lunch break, okay? Also, the store has a number you can call ahead. I don't work there anymore. But the point remains, if you have a big order, don't go through the drive-thru. It's rude. I know, but here's the thing. You probably didn't even realize that unless you've worked in fast food because, and then you're like, preach it, right? So, the idea in the text is beware of doing things for the wrong motivation. Don't, don't do things to receive praise from people. Do them unto the Lord. And this idea continues all throughout Scripture. We see this idea. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, But he gives gr- more grace, therefore, says the Lord, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 11, 2 says, "When." Pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with, humble, but with the humble is wisdom. 1 Peter 5, 5-6 through six says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in his due time. You could say, let God exalt you when he wants to. And it is such a temptation for us to even just kind of like find a way to get it out there like we did something. You ever had this happen to you? Like you you do something and you're like, that was cool, man. That was so cool how the Lord worked. Like, hey, I'm glad, you know, this is your own thoughts, right? You're like, that was cool. I did that. I'm glad I did that. Like that person was blessed by that. Like, thank you, Jesus. I'm not even going to tell anybody about this. I just want it to be like, I just want to keep to myself and let my reward be in heaven. And then you find yourself, like, the next person you see, you're like, the coolest thing just happened, and you're already spilling what you just did. Now, there are times where telling somebody about something that just happened can be encouraging, and, you know, I'm not saying you never say that, but it's funny how we always have this desire to kind of like, so do you think that's cool? And we're like on the edge of our seat, like, tell me how cool I am, you know? And you're like, no, God's like, no, that's not, you don't need that. You don't need it. Um, It's nice, but let him exalt you in his due time. So the principle is, in all you do, do it to please God and God alone. A humble servant seeks to serve their master, not themselves. The best servant seeks to serve his master. Now, you could apply this very similarly to, nowadays, any job where there is an employee-boss relationship. The best employees are those that do their work faithfully, on time, without griping. Those are the best employees. The employees that are a pain in the butt are the ones that complain all the time, have a million questions, didn't pay attention during the orientation and training, so they are totally lost. You know what I mean? So a good servant, if we wanted to change out the word employee for servant, you could say a good servant just does the job, they do it right they ask questions if necessary, but it's not this, like, big old thing where you're, you know, complaining about it. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because I'm going to jump ahead for a minute because we're already talking about this. The Scripture says to, to serve enthusiastically. It doesn't say to gripe and complain. Your service is not pleasing to God if you're doing it out of a place of contempt or obligation. In the same way, God says, don't give out of a place of obligation. He says, give out of a place of joy. I believe that is so true of your time, too, and your effort. Give out of a place of joy. Now, there are times where things happen, and you have to do something, and it's not full of joy, right? There are times where things break, and your wife needs you to help and you're like beat because you just got off work and you worked a 12-hour shift and you're not exactly filled with joy when she says, honey, the toilet's uh, clogged and I think the main sewer line's backed up, right? I had a friend yesterday that was telling me that their main sewer line backed up and he's working like a dog right now at his job and came home and the main sewer line's backed up and they had to do a whole bunch of work. and But, but that may not necessarily be a moment where you're filled with joy, but you still do it out of a love for God. And we are called to serve enthusiastically. Can you imagine if somebody was opening the door for you at church, but they were so, you know, not serving out of a place of enthusiasm, and you come to church, and they're like, Welcome to Living Truth. Come on, just go in. Come on, I I don't even really, I don't even want to do this. They just needed people, and so I just, I signed the thing, Okay. Can you imagine? That's not an enthusiastic servant. That's somebody who's serving out of a sense of obligation and is almost there just because they feel like they have to be. And I will submit to you that even when you have to do something out of obligation, like your job, if you ask God for joy, he will give it gladly. He doesn't hold back joy from you like, you can't have it. That's not our God. He wants you to be joyful. But you have to ask him The scripture says you have not because you ask not. So serve out of a place of joy and enthusiasm. Humility, true humility, says God has saved me and God therefore deserves all the glory. All boasting should be in Jesus. Even Jesus himself in John 6.38 says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who has sent me. Jesus is the epitome of a faithful, humble servant. And Mark 10.45, as many of you should know this verse because we did a whole series on servanthood last year. What does the verse say? It says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus was not above servanthood. So I'm sorry, but neither are you, and neither am I. If he was willing and able as God in flesh to submit himself to the lowest position of a servant, then I should be more than willing and probably deserve to be in that place to begin with in comparison to who Jesus is. If he was not above servanthood, neither are we. Now, the disciples would come to understand this. In this particular passage, the disciples are kind of like the group that we're always like, come on, guys. You know, like they're always with Jesus, but they never seem to really know what's going on. But we got to be honest, if 12 of us got picked, it would be the exact same story. Okay. But every time there's like this amazing unfolding, like the washing of the feet is pointing to how we're going to be washed ultimately by God and freed from our sins. And Peter's like, no. And you're like, no, you don't get it. You know, and there's all these times through scripture where the disciples are kind of just like, what is going on? And Jesus even says, you don't understand what's going on right now, but you will. And those are prophetic words because if you look at scripture, long after Jesus has already risen from the dead and has ascended back to heaven preparing a place for you and I, Paul and James say, we are bond servants of Jesus Christ. The Greek word is doulos to be a to choose to be a servant. And so Jesus was right. They would come to understand this idea that we were called to be servants of Christ. And like I said, the word is doulos. It means there's this uh, implication that it's a decision that you have made. It's not out of obligation. You have the ability to choose to become a servant. It's a servant by choice. That is what makes love significant. A choice. When two people become married, when my wife and I shared our wedding vows— If we had been both obligated to be there, it would be a little less beautiful. Do you you follow? For anyone who is in this room who's married, when you said those vows, they were precious because the two of you are essentially saying, hey, there's a lot of people in this world. I'm choosing you and you alone, and I want to be faithful to you for the rest of my life. Just you. And so it becomes significant because there's a choice involved. That is why God has given us free will. Because we're able to make decisions. If we walked around pre-programmed to love God, it's not significant. And in the same way, Jesus, as the cross is like coming, he's choosing to continue forward, to move forward obedient to the Father for you and I. Did you know that even on this night, as the feet are being washed of the disciples, Jesus had you in mind? Because as the cross is coming nearer, he's thinking about all those who he will die for who are guilty and condemned in their sin. But he still took the place of a servant. There is no greater calling than to be a servant, because if there was, Jesus would have done it. And because he took the place of servant, so should we. So the next point would be humility is able to receive. We look at Peter. What does he say? Peter said to him in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Peter says a lot of really bold statements and then Jesus immediately is like, no, you're wrong. It's going to happen again. Later, early this next morning, Peter's going (laughs) to take up a sword and try to fight and Jesus is going to say, no. Let me me go to the cross. And again, they're still not totally sure what's going on. But Peter, you know, uh, I was kind of just picturing this scene, it's a weird one, right? So Jesus gets up, and we don't know if Peter was the first person that Jesus went to, um, or he was, you know, he'd already washed a few of the disciples' feet, and then he got to Peter. But nonetheless, when he gets to Peter, there's almost this picture. Now, how many of you have seen the famous painting of the Last Supper? I'm sure you have, if you've been on Google, right? Okay, so All of us could say we're probably a little confused on how the last supper actually looked because of that wonderful painting. Everybody's conveniently placed to be facing the, like, artist, right? And there's, like, this massive stone table, right? And it's not at all what this dinner would have looked like. Most likely, they would have been reclined very low to the ground. It would have been a table that was just above the ground, and they would have been reclined. So they're not sitting on chairs or this really nice, at this really nice table. So they're reclined, and... I can kind of picture that Jesus gets to Peter and Peter kind of pulls his legs back, right? And he's like, you're not going to wash my feet. Now, there's two thoughts that could be applied to what is happening here. Some commentators would say, well, Peter's being prideful. And there's an issue with pride inside of Peter and that's why he won't let Jesus wash his feet. That's one thought. And it may very well be the case. I will be honest with you, as I'm reading this text, I don't see that so much. I more see myself in that situation doing the same thing, but not out of a place of pride necessarily, but more out of a place of like, I don't deserve, why would you wash my feet? Like this doesn't seem right. Whatever the issue may be, we don't know for sure, but we do know what Jesus says for sure. That if Peter is not washed, he has no share, or some scriptures, uh, translations say, no part with Jesus. If he's not washed, he has no part. So what does that mean for us in 2018 as Christians? It means that if you're not washed by the blood of Jesus, which this is ultimately a picture of, then you have no part with him. That means that if you have not cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I need you, cleanse me of my sin, The scripture clearly teaches that then yours is not the kingdom of heaven. And so many people will live their whole life in opposition to God, never asking for that cleansing when they so desperately need it. And as I said, I think that this is a picture of ultimately the cleansing that you and I so desperately need from our sin. So the next point would be that humility is able to receive. Those who are humble will be able to receive. Now, what I mean by that? I mean this. We get weird sometimes when people compliment us. You've seen the scenario unfold in whatever ways in life, right? Somebody bring somebody to the front, or they stand them up at dinner, or they, or even they just start complimenting somebody, and they're like, no, 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 no. no. They want to hide in like a hole, right? It's almost like they're running away from, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like we get weird when people try to compliment us. But can I tell you that humility is able to receive? And there's two reasons why I think it's so important to let people bless you. And if people want to exalt you, the Scripture says that the humble will be exalted. And God can use other people to build you up. And if you don't let people build you up, you possibly keep yourself from a blessing that God is trying to pour out on you through another person. But you also rob a blessing from that person who's trying to build you up. So it's a lose-lose situation. So if somebody starts complimenting you and they're coming from a genuine place, let them do it. Because they're trying to encourage you. And so humility is able to receive. And I love Peter's reaction after Jesus says what he says. Then Peter's like, well, then, Lord, wash my whole body. Right? And Jesus is like, no. It's just a picture, Peter. Gosh, dang it. Right? He's so patient with the disciples. But Peter is this big, boisterous man. He's probably got a big, burly beard, right? He's a fisherman. He's probably really strong. He's kind of I always think of Peter as like this just kind of he's a big goofball. And he's probably like comedic relief at times for the group. But with that came he's recorded saying several things that you're like, "Oh no. Shouldn't have said that." <laughs> Some of you are like, "I am Peter." Let's look at verse 12. So it says Verse 12, when he had washed their feet, so Peter let him wash his feet, goes through all of them, and then it says he put on his garments and he resumed his place, and he said to them, do you understand what I have, you do not understand what I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, I am your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. So if you know these things, we have been reading the book of James. The book of James says, don't be just a hearer, but be a doer. So if that's what the book of James says, then Jesus is literally well, he's not reiterating it because that text will come, but the same principle. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you... Blessed are you if you... If you do them. Thinking about being a servant is great, but it means nothing if you aren't actually a servant. I think about being really buff all the time, and that's not really doing anything for me, huh? Huh? You can tell right now, look, I think about going to the gym, but unless I go to the gym, I'm not going to get stronger. I've been going back, it's been getting better. My wife and I are trying, you know, do you know have those, those, like my wife works like opposite schedule me a lot of days. So when we actually see each other, the last thing we're thinking is like, let's go sweat and be miserable for 45 minutes. Right. But we've been trying. It takes discipline. And that's really true of our Christian walk, isn't it? It takes discipline. I can say all day, I want to be a servant. I want to be humble. I want to serve God. But if I don't step up and do something, it means nothing. James says, as we've been reading on Sundays, if your faith doesn't take action, it's worthless to you. If I say that I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, but nothing in my life actually really looks like it, then my words are, are nothing, They're nothing. I have to take action. And that's the call that we have on our lives as Christians. We're called to serve. As I said earlier, don't spend too much time on the speech. Just do it. Just serve. Another thing that we need to, we can't skip over is this. Does it say that Jesus washed some of the disciples' feet or all? It says all. All. Okay, who's at that dinner table? Judas. The very man who in just a short time will betray Jesus. And Jesus, knowing because he is God, have you ever thought about this? When Judas comes into the picture from the very beginning, Jesus knows he will betray him from the very beginning. And Jesus loves him anyways, over years of time. If you knew a friend of yours was going to betray you and send you to your death, you would probably cut ties pretty quick, right? You wouldn't be setting up coffee dates with them and going and hanging out. You're going to betray me today? Okay, cool. Since it's coming later, let's hang out. No one does that, but our Lord does that because he loves perfectly And even his worst enemy who's going to betray him, who Satan will use, as it says in the beginning, Satan has already put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. He still loves him, and not only does he love him, but his love took action, and he gets down, and he washes the feet of the very man who will betray him that night. That is servanthood. It's easy to serve people I love, or easier, right? I love my wife, so I don't mind doing things for my wife. But if, you know, I don't like somebody, it's a little harder to serve them. But did you know that Jesus is saying through his actions right here, love even and serve even your worst of enemies. Even those that would kill you. And we have brothers and sisters right now in other places of this world where Christianity is illegal who are lit, literally living this out. Who are staying faithful to the Father even though there are people who are trying to kill them for their faith. And you can imagine the turmoil that's going on inside Jesus because he's human. So he has emotions. He gets hungry. He gets tired. He has to go to the bathroom. He's a person. So, the person within him is like, I don't like this guy. He has to face that temptation, face that thought, knowing that Judas will betray him, and he's choosing still to wash his feet. That is amazing to me. And even, I feel like Jesus probably is even sad. Can you see the picture where Jesus gets to Judas, and he kneels down and he starts washing his feet, and maybe he looks into the eyes of Judas, and maybe tears are coming down because he knows And I think Judas is starting to figure out that he already knows. And still, in the midst of that scene, Jesus looks into his eyes, and he he loves him still. Knowing what's about to happen. And it is such a sad scene, because Judas walked with Jesus, lived with him, cried with him. And this is how... Ultimately, their relationship will come to an end. And if Judas, in fact, is in hell, Jesus in his foreknowledge may very well have known that that was the last time him and Judas would really see each other before the actual betrayal. So he leaves his relationship with Judas at a place of servanthood. Being a servant means that you serve those who are in need, not those who you like necessarily. It just means you serve where there's a need. We like to pick where we want to serve, right? Well, if it's convenient for me, then I'll do it. That's our culture, like we said earlier. But Jesus says, just serve. Servanthood is not a sign of weakness, because Jesus served, and Jesus was not weak. Colossians 3:12 through13 says, "Put on then as God has chosen ones, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive." Just as Jesus will cry upon the cross, Father, forgive them. I think that in a way, Jesus is almost forgiving Judas for what he's about to do in this scene. I want to be able to have that kind of servanthood within me, to be able to serve like that. And our last thing that I want to talk about this morning is this. What is the command that Jesus gives? Look at verse 14. He says, "If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet." By all human standard, it would make perfect sense for Jesus in that situation to say, "Now that I've done this for you, do it to me." But that's not what he says. He says, now that I have done this for you, do it to each other. He begins to be even more selfless and humble. It's not, there's literally no impure motivation in what he is doing. He's coming, he's serving them as an act of obedience to the Father, as an act of love, and no part of him wants anything in return. He just says, now do this to one another. As I have done, do it to each other. That is our call as Christians. To serve each other. If a brother is going through something, to be there for that brother. And sister's the same. If there's a need in the church, even if it's not your favorite thing, stepping up and doing it. It applies to your marriages. When your wife needs help and you don't wanna do it, you do it. When your husband needs help, And wives, you don't want to do it. You do it anyways. When your kids need something and you don't want to do it, you send them to their room. No, you do it. Right? That is servanthood. It's dying to self. Ultimately, that is what humility is at its core. It's dying to what you want for the sake of other people. Now, I think that humility gets misconstrued in church all the time. This is what we wrap up humility as in church. Oh, not I, brother. All glory to God. I get why some people say that, but that's not humility. Humility is just through your actions pointing the glory to God. If you're not a humble person, but then somebody like you know, point something out, and then you're like, oh, glory to God. You know, it's like that That doesn't really mean much if your life doesn't reflect that. But if your life reflects the idea of servanthood, then let God exalt you in his proper time. Let other people build you up. Don't do it on your own. Nobody likes the guy that builds himself up, right? Nobody likes the guy that's the bee monster. Brian Regan has a, uh, he's a comedian. He has a a sketch where he talks about the me monster and there's always one at a dinner party, right? And he's at a dinner party and there's a guy sitting across the table and the guy won't shut up about himself. He's like, oh, I own three uh, private jets and I got a, I got a half a million dollars in my uh, checking account. And then I have six million and, uh, half in uh, my, and he's just going on and on about himself. And Brian Regan's whole sketch is like, I wish I walked on the moon, because then I could just wipe everybody out of the water. Like he can go on his whole tirade of all his own things, right? Talk about himself. And then I can casually be in the corner. No one's really noticed me at the table. And then, you know, the time comes around, the guy finally stops talking and I can just say, hmm, I walked on the moon. Floor is yours, moonwalker. But nobody likes the guy that brings all the attention to themselves and it's all about them and what they've done and they've accomplished. How many ladies have been on a date where you didn't go out with the guy again because you felt like he was really cocky? There's got to at least be one. See, we've got a couple, right? I've gone out to coffee with guys and I'm like, I don't want to be your friend because you talked about you the whole time. I'm just kidding, kind of. <laughs> but you know what I mean. And what a lot of those people probably don't even realize is that it's a biblical principle. Just don't build yourself up. Let other people do it. And now, one last thing is this. Humility doesn't mean that you think you're the worst person ever. It means that you think of yourself in correct place compared to who God is and what he has done. If I understand how desperate I am for Jesus then humility should flow naturally from my life. I'm going to mess up. I will have my moments. We will have our moments. But ultimately, if I have a proper understanding of who I am and who God is and how all humans are broken without him, then humility should flow from our life. Chuck Swindoll shared a story in a sermon about a time in his life where his wife went through a really bad depression. And she was diagnosed with what they thought would be drugs that would help her. And it turned out that uh, the the drugs actually made the depression far worse. And she ended up in a psychiatric hospital and was there for almost a year. And Chuck Swindoll, fighting tears through the sermon at his uh, alma mater, giving one of the greatest sermons I think I've ever heard on servanthood, said this. And Chuck Smith has, excuse me, not Chuck Smith. uh, Chuck Smyndall has ministries across the world, excellent speaker, man of God, accomplished so much through his life. He's now 82 years old, I think, and this is what he said. Out of all the things that I've been through, all the people I've met, all the things that I've done with my wife and I and the ministry that God has, you know, used us for, and blessed us with, the people in my life who have most impacted me have been those who fulfill the call of being a humble servant. Not the big names that you know about, not not those that are, you know, just the ones that were humble, faithful servants to him and his wife. And through that time, as they went through, as she went through that depression, he said that, The one thing that he'll never forget about it, and he said that he learned more in that time, in that year, than he has in 65 years of ministry. Because they had one friend who faithfully was there whenever they needed him to pray with them, fasting for them, and just being there. Not even necessarily saying a lot, just being there for them. Being a servant to whatever they needed. Those are the people that make the biggest impact. If everything that we do revolves around, I want to have an attitude of humility, I want to please God, I understand who God is and what He's done for me, and I just want to be a humble servant, it will change our culture. It will change our church. It will change our families. Every aspect of our life will be bettered if we humble ourselves and we put the other needs in our life, people's needs, above our own. It doesn't mean that you totally forsake your own needs. Even Jesus took naps all the time. Love that. All the moms are like, Amen. There's nothing like a good nap. Take care of yourself, obviously. But the point is, put other people before you. Our call as Christians is to be servants. And we cannot be servants unless we are humble. So let's all strive towards humility. Amen.